Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. It's May 25th, the time is 4.03, and on behalf of the team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Ian Grice. And I'm Marissa Jordan, and today we're bringing you a special Moogfest episode. In this show, we will have community calendar, but it's looking like a slow week in the triangle. Jake Winters brings you Snowverated. This week, he reviews the film Repo Man, and Nick Weaver brings you his Modest Mouth Review. This week, he reviews Sad Lines, Sad Lands by Human Eyes. Jamie Hollow was covering Moogfest for WKNC, and we'll share a little bit about his Moogfest experience. And Marissa has an interview with Jesse Cohen of the podcast No Effects and the guitarist for Tan Lines. Up next is Saif Hassan with News Behind the Headlines. He'll be talking about a Russian pilot that just got out of prison and a Canadian polar bear. And this is your news beyond the headlines. Russia has freed jailed Ukrainian pilot Nadia Savchenko, who became a symbol of resistance against Moscow for Ukraine. I am free, Savchenko told a crowd of reporters and politicians as she arrived in Kiev as part of a prisoner swap with two alleged Russian soldiers. She was sentenced to 22 years in jail for killing two Russian journalists in eastern Ukraine, charges she denied. The two Russians, Yevgeny Yerofeyev and Alexander Alexandrov, were earlier flown from Kiev to Moscow. Savchenko was pardoned by Russian President Vladimir Putin before her return to Ukraine. Mr. Putin said he had acted after meeting relatives of the two Russian journalists who had asked him to show mercy to Savchenko. In Ukraine, President Petro Poroshenko pardoned the two Russian nationals. In a tweet in Ukrainian earlier on Wednesday, Mr. Poroshenko wrote, The presidential plane with the hero of Ukraine, Nadia Shevchenko, has landed. At a joint news conference with President Poroshenko later on Wednesday, Shevchenko thanked her family and the people of Ukraine for supporting her while she was held in Russia. Ukraine has the right to be, and it will be, she said, pledging to do everything she could to free all Ukrainian nationals still being kept prisoner in Russia and in parts of Ukraine controlled by pro-Russian rebels. Meanwhile, President Poroshenko, who awarded Savchenko a Hero of Ukraine star, said, This is our common victory. He also thanked German Chancellor Angela Merkel, French President Francois Hollande, and U.S. President Barack Obama for supporting Ukraine. In Canada, a possible grizzly polar bear hybrid has been shot by a hunter. Scientists will have to wait on DNA tests to determine whether it is one of the rare crosses. The two bears generally inhabit different ecological niches, but some experts suggest climate change and melting Arctic ice could increasingly bring them into contact. The possible hybrid is said to possess physical features of both species. The animal was shot by a 25-year-old hunter in Nunavut, the country's biggest and northernmost territory. I think it's 99% sure that it's going to turn out to be a hybrid, Ian Sterling, a research scientist with Environmental Canada, told the Toronto Star newspaper. Hybrids are either known as a growler or a pisley, depending on whether the father is a grizzly or polar bear. The finds have to be confirmed through genetic tests and are so rare that only a handful have been confirmed in the last decade. Professor Andrew de Rocher, 
from the University of Alberta said that the bear did not appear to be an albino grizzly, but its claws appear to be longer and more grizzly-like than other hybrids that have been caught and examined. We haven't done the genetics on this and, until we do, we won't really be able to say anything conclusively, he told the Toronto Star. The unusual thing here is, how did a male grizzly bear bump into a female polar bear? Most of the mating activity of polar bears is occurring out on the sea ice, so there's a spatial discontinuity between a grizzly bear and a polar bear in the spring. Mixing between the two species probably happened a thousand years ago as ice sheets advanced and retreated. Today, their interactions could receive a boost as climate change and melting Arctic ice force them to closer proximity. I'm Saif Hassan, and this has been your News Beyond the Headlines. Today, I got to interview Jesse Cohen of the podcast No Effects and the guitarist from Tanlines. Cohen was at Moogfest 2016 to do a live podcast recording with Julia Holter and Empress of. Past guests of No Effects include Ed Drost from Grizzly Bear, Ali Shaheed Muhammad from A Tribe Called Quest, Jenny Haval, Ezra Koenig from Vampire Weekend, and Kilea. Is this your first time in Durham? It's not, actually. My band, Tanlines, played at the Motor Co. Mm, Music yeah. Hall. I'm familiar with that. I think it was a brand new venue mm-hmm. at the time. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, how's North Carolina treating you? Well, you know, I haven't been here long enough to really... You're kind of the first person I've talked mm-hmm. to who's from North Carolina mm-hmm. who's here. So I'll say great so far, but... Um, I like the, I like the state in general. Um, so where does the name No Effects come from? Well, you know, there was a band with that name, mm-hmm. a pop-punk band that was popular when I was young and currently still, well, for young people. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's a little bit of a nod to that, mm-hmm. but more specifically, it's just sort of the style of the show mm-hmm. and my interview style. And the style of the um, the podcast, which is pretty straightforward, mm-hmm. no effects. So, what's your favorite episode of No Effects? My favorite episode, um, I really enjoyed two. One, I'll say, is uh, was very early on. It's with Eleanor Friedberger mm-hmm. from the Fiery Furnaces. Do you know that band? Not That's okay. Them. Um, it was just very early on. I had never met her. I think she was the first person on the show who I never didn't mm-hmm. know personally. And we had a it was a great conversation. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, was, it was very good. And then another one I'd say is uh, the artist Kalela. She's great. Mm-hmm. And I knew her music. And I, we had met a few times, but she's just those are my favorite episodes mm-hmm. because those are good guests mm-hmm. it's only as good as they yeah. are willing to be and so they both really opened up and was, I learned about them and I assume that means that the listener learned about them too um so 
Uh, how did you meet Eric M? From the band? Yes, from your band. Okay. Well, he um, used to run a music studio that was in Brooklyn that mm-hmm. I went to work at um, with my old band many years mm-hmm. ago now. And we just kind of became friends. And that was the root of our creative partnership as well. And when did you decide to start a band together? Well, I guess it was 2008. And, uh, you know, I used to go over to the studio even if we weren't working, even if I wasn't recording, mm-hmm. we'd just hang out and we would just, we just started making music together during a sort of a down period, mm-hmm. put it on the internet, and that's how bands start now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd the idea to have a conference call for highlights come from? So that was um, an idea that was brought to us by our record label, actually, mm-hmm. but that was how we released our, our our second album and it was like sort of a promotional gimmick mm-hmm. but it, it worked for us I think because um, I remember when we started when we first released our, our first album something I would see a lot of people saying on Twitter and other places is I'm at work and I'm listening mm-hmm. to Tan Lions or like Tan Lions I'm dancing at my mm-hmm. desk listening it's yeah. like a thing I'd see so sort of a funny idea and a, sort of a funny nod to that way mm-hmm. of like listening to music at work like this way you could actually be on a call yeah listen to the album that's cool yeah okay um and has it been a challenge balancing band family friends and a podcast mm. i'll just say no <laughs> uh because you know that's just that's just life you know it's just work-life balance you know there are times when it's challenging and there are times when it's not so I'll lean on to the side of it's not a challenge okay so one last question I'm gonna go off script for this one great I saw in um, Mirtha's notes that you interview a lot of indie artists okay and one of the names I saw was Ezra Koenig yes and I am a huge Ezra fan big fan fan. I wanted to hear about that yeah well okay my band opened for them for a week um, really? Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. Hello. Yeah. We met through Bayo, who's mm. also been on my yeah. show, um, who was a fan of ours. And then we did a week with them, and we sort of stayed in touch. And then I asked Ezra if he would do my show, and he said sure. And I went to his house and recorded. And he likes to talk, so yeah. it was easy to. <laughs> it was an easy one. The shows are not easy when the person doesn't want to talk, and he does like to talk. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, it was, yeah, it was good. He, he's such a smart and eloquent person. That's mm-hmm. part of the reason their his lyrics are great and part of the reason their band is so successful. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it was a pleasure to sit and talk with him. Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. Good afternoon. This week I'll be doing a special Jamie Reviews. Top on the bandwagon of those film and music reviews you love so much. The review will be of something a bit different, a music festival, more specifically Moogfest. Moogfest was held this past weekend in Durham, North Carolina. Moogfest was held this past weekend in Durham, North Carolina, its third location in its 12th year as a festival. From 2004 to 2008, the festival was held in New York City. 
In 2009, there's no Moogfest, and in 2010, Moogfest signed a deal with AC Entertainment, aka the company that co-produces Bonnaroo. They decided to move the festival to Asheville, North Carolina, where it lasted until 2014. In 2015, the city of Asheville more or less decided to cut funding on the festival, and so there was no Moogfest 2015. Looking for a new location, Moogfest turned its head east and found Durham, North Carolina as its new and potentially permanent location. Going into Moogfest 2016, I wasn't overly sure what to expect. I had never attended Moogfest in Asheville and I was not familiar with the Durham area. The lineup was very solid and I was excited to see many of the acts playing, but I was apprehensive that the festival would run smoothly as it was the first time in a new city and the weather wasn't looking too great for the weekend of music. Luckily, the weather turned out great for the most part, save for that time I was waiting in line for Gary Newman and the rain really started coming down, but oh well. Things from an outsider's perspective seemed to have run smoothly. Just about every band I saw performed at the time they were supposed to. The sound quality was great, even outdoors, and overall there weren't too many complaints. But I'll get to those in a little bit. However, some of my friends that volunteered did say that the volunteering was a bit of a mess, but hey, props to Mugfest for still having the music things run smoothly. Some of the highlight sets of the weekend included Blood Orange's effortless foray into soulful 80s and 90s tinged music on the Motoco stage. Throughout the night, lead singer and guitarist Dev Hines glided across the stage, singing and dancing with grace beyond belief to really start the weekend off right. Friday night was by far my most anticipated night, featuring some of my favorite artists in Grimes and Denzel Curry. Despite the set time conflicts, I got to see a majority of both of their sets. Grimes took the stage a bit earlier than Denzel and brought immense energy and fun to the Motorco Park stage with her backup band slash dancers. In an instant, Grimes would just start screaming, and it was truly wonderful. She brought great dance moves and just had tons of energy, and the crowd was just dancing their little tiny butts away. Lots and lots of fun. Immediately after Grimes, inside the Motorco Music Hall, Denzel Curry was delivering his hard-hitting hip-hop songs to the most energetic crowd of the whole festival, inciting quite a few mosh pits, a very rare sight at Moogfest. He plowed through a set with many of his hits including Threats, Zone 3, and Ultimate, which made the crowd go wild, and my beautiful white shoes got a little bit dirty, but it was still quite fun and worth the dirtiness. Friday night, the Motorco Music Hall saw a handful of hip-hop artists perform, including the excellent local rapper Professor Toon, who has a great stage presence and knows how to bend an audience to his will and getting them to turn up with him. Lunas, a producer from Canada, brought an energetic to Motorco replete with many of the year's top bangers from artists such as Kodak Black and Anderson Pop. Lunas was exceptionally disappointed to not be able to play a longer set, but alas, Tory Lanez and Jizza had to perform at some point. Let's just say I would rather have seen more Lunas than Tory Lanez, who effectively talked his way out of any new fans by telling a story of how he seduced a girl in North Carolina once, and then exclaiming that he cheated on his girl earlier that day. Jizza of Wu-Tang Clan fame took the stage soon after Tory Lanez and delivered a lesson in hip-hop with the dexterity of his bars. Rumor has it Jizza allowed WKNC DJ Iron Mike to perform the song Triumph on stage with him. Friday night marked a great night for Moogfest. Saturday marked a great day for Moogfest. So Saturday, I decided it was in my best interest to actually arrive at Moogfest at a much earlier time of 10am in order to see some of these talks that Moogfest work just as hard on as in music. I started my day out by seeing Janelle Monet do a panel with Alison Schroeder, who are both a part of the upcoming film Hidden Figures, a film revolving around three black women in the 1960s and their pivotal part in NASA and the launching of Apollo 11. 
From there, I saw another panel that involved Janelle Monet, Reggie Watts, Christian Rich, and hieroglyphic being revolving around the idea of Afrofuturism, which interestingly enough, the artist kind of criticized Milkfest for claiming them to be Afrofuturism artists. This panel offered quite the engaging dialogue between the four artists and really should have lasted longer than an hour, as it was very insightful and informative. I even got to play around at the Moog pop-up factory and touch some of the very expensive synthesizers, which was fun, but don't expect me to have a synth project anytime soon. One of my highlights of Moogfest happened Saturday afternoon. My friends wanted to see Moses Sumney at the First Presbyterian Church. Now I had no idea who Moses Sumney was, but I also had nothing else to do and wanted to check out the church venue, and boy was I glad I did. Moses Sumney was quite possibly the best performance of the weekend, swinging his way into my heart with his soft vocals and spectacular looping effects he performs with the acoustics of clapping and his voice. His set ended with a standing ovation from the crowd who were obviously just as mesmerized by him as I was. From there, comedian Reggie Watts humored the crowd for an hour and a half to mostly family-friendly fun. The weather was threatening to rain throughout his set and finally started raining by the end and made for an unpleasant 30 minutes waiting for Gary Newman, but that was about the only rain of the entire festival, so can't complain too much there that the rain held off and the weather was oh, really pretty nice, a little bit chilly sometimes, but oh well, it was still pretty good. Now. I had no idea who Gary Newman was before this festival. I had friends who were immensely excited for him, but I was completely unaware of who he was. So naturally, I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. And it was well worth it, as he led a delightful 80s-influenced set, but brought it into modern times with a captivating light show. I'm not sure I'd listen to him on record, as I'm not really a fan of 80s music, but live, he was, he was really good. One of my most anticipated acts was after Gary Newman, and that was the Drone Doom band Sun O with like three parentheses afterwards. Now, for those of you who don't know, Sun doesn't really play normal music. It can best be described as guitars played very loudly and slowly with no discernible structure. The act of seeing Sun live is based around the experience it creates in your body, as the frequencies of the music very much vibrate through your body and make you feel some sort of way. My biggest complaint of the festival comes from the fact that Sun played outside at the Motorco Park as opposed to an indoor venue. From what I hear, it is best to experience the drone of Sun in a confined room where the sound can't escape into the night but is stuck with you permanently torturing your ears and body for the duration of their set. But alas, Carolina Theater was afraid that the extreme decibels would destroy the plaster of their venue, which is probably fair, but not very metal. Continuing with the complaint train, I faced my first real disappointment of the festival and that I faced not one, but two at capacity venues and couldn't get into the shows I wanted to see. First was Christian Rich, an electronic duo that is produced for Earl Sweatshirt and Vince Staples, performed at the Motorco Hall and the venue was not letting people in as it was at capacity. Annoyed with this, I thought I would try to catch some of One of Tricks Point Never, but again, the venue was at capacity and were not letting in any general mission pass holders and focusing only on the VIP passes, meaning I waited at the front of the line for one and a half hours just watching VIPs get let in. Now, I know VIPs paid a lot for their tickets, but like, I think Moogfest could have done something more like three VIPs, one general mission instead of just ignoring the general mission people, but it's okay as eventually I got in, in time to see Explosions in the Sky, who didn't disappoint as they brought a fantastic end to Moogfest, well, musically, exploring the depths of their sonic soundscape with loud crescendos and very, very pretty lights. The at capacity venues somewhat make me wonder if Moogfest may have oversold on tickets or just that the two venues had the most like popular acts at the time. I'm not really sure, but it's something to maybe focus on next year not having so many at capacity venues at one time because it does kind of, it's not great for a music fan when you have, when you're stuck waiting outside and you just really want to see one of Tricks Point Never or somebody, but I guess that's the way of the game because it's like that at Hopscotch too. 
Milkfest as a whole was quite successful in providing an engaging festival that was much more than a festival with the daytime activities, which much to my surprise, I quite enjoyed just as much as the music. Speaking of the music, it was top notch and expertly curated to appeal to a wide variety of fans. And I will definitely look forward to Milkfest 2017, which is already said to happen in Durham again and even has its dates. Together, the combination of the music and the daytime activities make Milkfest a festival that stands out from the crowd as it caters to so many audience but also aims to educate and entertain. I came into Moogfest with not many expectations as I just didn't know what to expect and I came out very pleasantly surprised and eager for the festival to continue 35 minutes away from my home. So good job Moogfest. I look forward to 2017. This has been Jamie Hall with I'm the Triangle and have a good afternoon. I'm Nick Weaver of Eye on the Triangle, and you are listening to the Modest Mouth Review. Ah, the 80s, a time of frizzy hair, ludicrous clothes, and really great or utterly terrible pop music, depending on who you ask. It is a time unparalleled, unpredictable, unexperienced by me, and seemingly unimitated. Or is it? Today's album, Sad Lands by Human Eyes, seeks to do just that, to imitate 80s indie rock. I suppose the question, therefore, is, is it successful? And, further, is it worth listening to? All of that and more in a minute. But first, just who is Human Eyes? Well... Stylized in all caps, Humanize is actually a local band from Chapel Hill, parentheses go to hell, Caroline, that started up back in 2012. That's about all I could gather, but I suppose with some bands, that's all you really need. Now, on to the music itself. Sadlands is an interesting experiment in music revival. To answer the question of whether or not it's successful in its imitation of 80s rock, I would have to say absolutely yes, very much so. It is astounding just how much this album sounds like it came directly out of the American underground back during the time of bands like The Smiths, later Velvet Underground, and more. It's completely uncanny, right down to even the singer's diction and pronunciation. It's bizarre, honestly. I have no idea how they did it, but sure as heck they did. Now, with that answered, I suppose I should answer the question of whether or not this album is worth your time. Honestly, that's going to depend big time on how much you love the 80s or 80s rock. Like I said, this album is an exact duplication of that sound. I can say that with supreme confidence. At first, I honestly thought that someone had sent us a CD with the lesser-known tracks of Midnight Oil, which would be all except for Beds Are Burning. If you love the quirky, twangy, clean guitar of the 80s, the goofy vocals and simple synth of the 80s, or even the lyrical cheese of the 80s, then you'll love this. 
It's all there. It's performed flawlessly. In some ways, it's even an improvement on bands of that time, taking what was at times incohesive instruments jammed together and turning it into a perfect blend. No instrument sticks out like a sore thumb. No synth riff sounds out of place. It's all exactly as it should be. The guitar and synth are even infectious at times, getting under your skin and making you want to dance. It's incredibly nostalgic for those of us that were alive in the 80s, parentheses, not me, and those of us that have seen Beverly Hills Cop San Mannequin a few too many times, parentheses, me. Like I said, if you crave that 80s wave, then this album is all yours. Prepare to be wooed. But if you're indifferent towards that sort of thing, then you may have some reservations. For one thing, a non-80s fan, or 80 hates, as I'd like to call them, will probably see most of the tracks as fairly repetitive and lacking much differentiation. And further, because this album recreates that jive and 80s vibe so identically, most of the flaws of the 80s are there as well. What to the rest of us would be a nostalgic quirk, to an 80 hate, the lyrics on this album would be, as they say, Bogus crap, man. Not tubular. That is to say, super cheesy, kind of lame, and definitely repetitive. So make of that what you will. Other than that, it's hard to say that this album innovates anything. Not that that's bad, as I don't believe that to be in any way the aim of the album. Still, don't come looking for the next big rock innovation, because you won't find it here. Instead, you will find a lovingly recreated taste of 80s indie rock joy. And I think, personally, that's pretty radical, dude, bro. For my final rating on a scale of negative 2 to 7, I give this album a 5. It excels beautifully at what it does. As a general standard though, a higher rating than that would be reserved for something that I find really innovative or extremely appealing to me personally, which this album was not necessarily. Still good though. Once again, the album is Sadlands by Humanize with the Z. That's all for today. I've been Nick, though I'm also known as Linz, Plesk, Meerkat, or just that dude who can't dress himself properly in public. I'm less fond of that last one. Thanks again for listening in, and I'll speak to you all again next time. This is Jake Winters for Iron the Triangle. This is Snowberated, and this week I will be taking a look at the film Repo Man. For this week's movie, I wanted to take a look at another famous 80s movie that I think captures at least a couple aspects of the decade perfectly. There's a punk scene, muscle cars, aliens, and girls. Not sure what else you need to pique a teenager's curiosity in a movie. This and the fact that the movie throws in cheesy but actually somewhat funny jokes throughout is what makes the movie stand out to me. It could have fallen apart because of the crazy combination of ideas that the movie has, but it was well blended together. The car chases don't seem impossible, and actually everything beside what happens with the aliens is believable. This is where I see a lot of action movies go wrong. They do things that no one would ever do, and sometimes it is just an average Joe doing them. 
They forget to stay within their character's boundaries. Of course there are movies with people doing incredible things that are believable within the frame of the movie, like the 007 franchise, but some others, like Shia LaBeouf's character in Transformers, have really no training and somehow survive in battles between giant robots. This movie stays within the frames of its characters. It doesn't exceed what most people could actually do in the situations presented. There are some pretty crazy car chases, but nothing that couldn't actually happen, which in my mind makes a movie work. I want fantastic, yet believable from a movie, which is understandably hard to achieve, but it works so well when it is done right. The movie was released in 1984 and stars what were then somewhat unknown actors. The main character, Otto, is played by Emilio Estevez, brother of Charlie Sheen, who later went on to have roles in The Breakfast Club and St. Almost Fire, two iconic films of the 80s. He does just as good of a job with this role as any other, and if you have seen and liked those films, I'm sure you could find something to enjoy in Repo Man. The music you have been listening to in the background of this review is Repo Man by Iggy Pop. It was produced specifically for this movie. Other artists in the soundtrack of this film include The Plugs, Suicidal Tendencies, among others which all fit well and definitely have the punk feel a lot of this movie gives off. The filming and set choices could easily be overlooked in this film. They aren't really too noticeable, but that is something that should also be mentioned. The way it was filmed, nothing felt out of place. The Repo Man's office wasn't in some office park, the outfits fit the scenes that the characters were involved in, and in general everything just clicked. I was reminded of Tarantino in this film through the trunk shot. A man cracks open the trunk of a car only to find an unpleasant surprise, but the shot coming from inside the trunk brought Tarantino right to my mind. During the period where this movie was released, Tarantino would have been in his 20s and just beginning his filming career. The wacky elements of Tarantino movies likely come from ideas inspired by weird 80s movies like Repo Man. That is part of what makes films from the 80s and any older generation of films for that matter stand the test of time. You can see how they impact how films are made today and where style choices have developed from. One funny aspect of the setting of the film that some may not even notice in the movie is the distinct lack of branded items. There hardly are any. Most of the cans and bottles have words like food and liquor on them. This is a super basic aspect, but it shows up so many times it gives the movie a Twilight Zone feel that is almost subconscious. You definitely notice the different containers, but may never pay close enough attention to them to catch the detail that obviously puts the scene in a fictitious movie. Along with being done very well visually, the film also has a really unique story. I wasn't sure what to expect when watching this movie as I have only heard it in passing reference as an 80s movie, but with a title like Repo Man, I knew it wasn't going to be completely conventional. Just the idea of making a main character a Repo Man is just kind of funny when you think about it. They are almost immediately anti-heroes. They aren't bad, but they aren't really good because they're stealing cars. The opening credits and scenes are what films try to copy when they want an 80s feel to them. The cop's uniform, the crazy scientist man, the disintegration, the lame supermarket, and the list could just go on. The unintentional details in old films will always stick out to me, and the fact that I simply was not alive in the 80s. And I think that is part of what makes them so interesting to me. They show me what sort of time my parents grew up in, and some distorted view of the culture of that period. I'm not saying this to make anyone feel old, but if you haven't done it before, try watching movies from when your parents would have been teenagers, and it really is pretty interesting. I'm going to give this movie a 7 out of 10. There's a lot to enjoy, and I hope I have made that clear, but there is something left to be desired from this movie. Maybe it is a more emotional plot or something along those lines, but some small detail keeps this movie from being perfect. 
That vague criticism being said, I don't think you could change the movie very easily and keep it great, so it would have been hard for it to get much higher score. Your best bet if you want to watch the movie is going to be Amazon, but it is available through a few other places. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Eye on the Triangle and Snowverated. I hope you enjoy the rest of your night. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. The time is 4.36, and I'm Marissa Jordan. And I'm Ian Grice. Marissa and I were also at Moog Fest uh, with Jamie Halla. Uh, we experienced the long lines as well as not being able to get into Sun Lux. Uh, but we were able to get into Yacht right after, so the wait wasn't uh, for naught. Uh, it was also a highlight of my experience at Moog. Um, I feel bad for all of the festival goers that were not able to see Yacht or Sun Lux or Jizza at the Motorco Music Hall because of the lines. Um, yeah. You can check out WKNC's Instagram or Twitter or blog at blog.wknc.org to see some of our coverage. And you can also read about our experiences tomorrow in The Technician, which will be on the stands tomorrow. For your community calendar, it's a slow week ahead and uh, Monday's Memorial Day, so try and take it easy. But this weekend, WRAL is hosting the Freedom Balloon Festival in Fleming Loop Park, Fuquay Varina. This festival will have more than 20 hours of live music, military equipment, and interactive displays, dozens of your favorite kinds of festival food, 400,000 square feet of amusements geared for the kids, a craft and beer and wine garden, and merchant arts and crafts village, courtesy of Fuquay Verena Chamber of Commerce. There will also be a staff senate meeting next Wednesday from 10 to 11 a.m. in Tally Room 4140. We'd like to thank all of our contributors. As always, if you've heard anything you've liked, you've hated, or anything that made you think, let us know at publicaffairs at wknc.org. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com where you can find our podcast. Or catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Ian Grice. And I'm Marissa Jordan, wishing you all an amazing Wednesday afternoon.